Pantry Studio Production. The Star City of Eastern Kentucky. Well, that's what they call it. Prestonsburg, Kentucky. It's in Floyd County and has around 4,000 people that call it home. And as they say, a river runs through it. The Leviza Fork of the Big Sandy River, as a matter of fact. And where there's rivers, there's bridges. And perhaps that's one of the things that Prestonsburg is best known for. They say it's one of the most unique bridges in the country. An arched rainbow bridge in the western part of town that has a storied part of this small town's past. This little part of Appalachia is packed with things to keep you busy. Things that a metropolitan area isn't likely to offer. Small town shops ran by the sort of folks that will feed you if you let them. There's hiking and biking, paddling and fishing. Then at night you could go to a concert at the Mountain Arts Center. Nearby, Jenny Wiley Lake offers great food at the May Lodge in a comfortable and friendly setting. Town staples like Billy Ray's Restaurant offer the best in comfort food. And it's a place where the smiles are always free and families get together and the meals are affordable. Yeah, something for almost everyone, it seems. But that doesn't mean that terrible, cruel things never happen. Not even the quaint little town that is snuggled by the Big Sandy is immune to tragedy and murder. A murder that has gone unsolved for over seven decades. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and this is Episode 4, Tears of a Star. The Mountain Mystery of Merrill Baldrige. I will be the last to fall. Shed a tear for them to see There are over 1.9 billion square acres in the United States alone, and 24% of those are mountainous. The secrets that these regions hold are enormous. Reports of mysterious creatures, strange sightings and sounds, ghosts and murders, and those who have seemingly vanished. There are questions that need asking and answers worth finding. These are the Mountain Mysteries. Here's Chris Sloan. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Mountain Mysteries. I am your host, Chris Sloan. And first off, thanks to our newest Patreon subscribers, Trevor Huff and Latricia Ferguson. I can't thank you guys enough. I've known them both for a long time, and they're fantastic people. All right, let's get to it. Screams under the cover of the darkness of night. And no one came to help? Well, wait a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself again. Let me back up. It was June 27th, 1949, and the world was a different place then. Most people in the small mountain community of Prestonsburg, Kentucky, would go to bed for the night with their doors unlocked and their cars, if they had any, Well, they were unlocked too, and the keys were readily accessible by nearly any of the neighbors that resided nearby. 
people trusted their fellow citizens and knew them. In many cases, they were either like family or were family. You see, this was a time long before Crime Stoppers, Neighborhood Watch Organizations, 911, and all the other deterrents that we have today. But it was a different time. Television was still in its infancy, and radio waves ruled the attention of most people. Names like Perry Como and Vaughn Monroe owned the music scene, radio serials, and dramas, as well as news kept most listeners engaged. The summer night had been one of friends and fun for a teen who was walking back home from a carnival that was in town. It had been a busy and fun day for Merrill Baldridge, who at 17 was the youngest to her parents, George and Bertha Baldridge. Now, while her name is actually Muriel, and it's spelled and pronounced that way, her family and friends called her Merle. So out of respect during this episode, I'll do the same. At this point in her life, her siblings were mostly grown and out of the house. She was a popular and beautiful Prestonsburg High School cheerleader and had a lot of friends and, well, got along with nearly everyone. It all began that day, well, like any other day would for most teenagers in 1949 America. The day was going to be filled with friends and things to do. She dressed up, and her aunt was said to have given her a pearl necklace to wear, complimenting her beautiful blue sundress outfit. At some point in the daylight hours, they went to a softball game, and then a movie, and afterwards there was a carnival that came to the sleepy little town. It was later that night that Merle and her friends began the short walk home. Wasn't very far at all, so we've learned. By all accounts, we're told that her friends, who were Thelma Hollingsworth, Sybil McKenzie, and Gail Hamilton, all offered to walk her home that night across the bridge, but it was so close, and she insisted that she'd be perfectly fine. She'd made this walk hundreds of times before to get home, and it was a little bit of a shortcut that she knew very well. That was the last time anyone saw Merle alive that I could find, other than her murderer. People have said that screams had been heard. But since there was a carnival going on in that general direction, those who heard them tragically overlooked them as kids having thrill rides, and no one ever went to look into it. It wasn't until the next morning, June 28, 1949, that Tom Calhoun who was a city bus driver and, at work, drove across the West Prestonsburg Bridge and saw something. Something that wasn't supposed to be there. Something out of place. He stopped at the nearby depot station and ran across the tracks trying to get the attention of others to call the police. Had someone jumped from the bridge? Were they pushed or had they fallen? Wasn't long after that a bread truck driver identified as Don Pitts was with his brother as they made the early morning rounds to David, Kentucky, a small outlying community not far at all from Prestonsburg when he saw it too. Something, or someone, laying in the bushes below the Rainbow Bridge that the small town had become so famous for having and now that bridge would always be associated with tragedy. Pitts also made his way towards what he thought was simply an object of some kind, only to discover the body of a young girl. 
a young girl in a blue sundress lying perfectly still in the grass. Her blonde hair bloodied, her skin pale. It looked as though she had severe head injuries. Once he realized this, Pitts began to climb back up the riverbank, frantically calling out to anyone that could hear him for help. But by the time the cops got there, some of the men from town descended and began to talk about who this could be. Who was this poor tragic girl that had lost her life? There would be no doubt. It was Merrill Baldrige, the loved and popular Prestonsburg High School teen who had died only 200 feet from where she had lived. From her family. From her home. Well, as you can imagine, in a small town, news of any kind spreads like the waters flow fast. And it wasn't long before the words of tragedy scattered through the town like dust in the wind. Many had left the scene to pass along information, and, and in some cases, misinformation. Then, Floyd County Sheriff Troy Sturgill came to the crime scene and tried to keep curious onlookers at bay while investigating a site that was both shocking and gruesome. Floyd County Coroner Brady Shepard showed up and briefly examined Merrill's body, then called for an ambulance to take her to Carter Callahan Funeral Home. Merrill's parents had not yet come out of the house, and Shepard had the thought that it would probably be better for them to identify their daughter's remains at the funeral home as opposed to at the crime scene surrounded by all the people looking at this. As the ambulance made its way across the bridge and onto the funeral home, it passed Sybil McKenzie, a friend of Merle's and also a cheerleader. Sybil had heard a young girl was found dead and she just knew it was her friend. She rushed onto the porch of Merle's house and begged her father, George, to tell her where Merle was at. By now, George had been informed, and he stood outside on the front porch in utter silence. He looked at Sybil, then looked away. A look of shock eventually took over his former expressionless face. As the family began to go inside to try to comfort each other, two men who had been among the onlookers earlier decided that maybe it was best to have Merle's best friend identify the body instead of her father. So they went to call on Joan Hall. Joan was still asleep when she heard the men come to her door. She was only 15 years young at the time when her mother came into her bedroom and told her the shocking and tragic news that her best friend had been murdered and that she had to identify the body. A frightened Joan went with the men to the funeral home her body tensing as they entered the room where, on the mortician's table, lay a body, covered by a white sheet sprinkled in red dots and stains. The sheet was pulled down and Joan saw her friend laying there quietly, without movement, and noticed her hair was matted and bloodied, her face swollen. And then she looked down at her best friend's hand and saw the tiger ring and dirt under her nails. Joan shakingly looked over at Shepard and told him that was indeed Merle's body. Her best friend was gone. 
During the autopsy, Shepard discovered five different fractures to Merrill's skull, and any one of them could have caused death. He further said that they were most likely made by something like a tire tool or brick. Shepard worked with detectives as they looked into the crime scene itself. They knew Merrill's dress had been torn, which pointed to a struggle. And it was a fight. She apparently did not go quietly. They concluded that whoever the scumbag was that killed her tried to throw her into the river, dragging her some 50 feet through grass and dirt but didn't have the strength to throw her in. The guess here was that by throwing her in the rapid waters of the Leviza Fork of the Big Sandy, she'd be washed away in any evidence with her. A pool of blood was found at the concrete base of the bridge's pier, suggesting she had been initially attacked there and dragged. It seemed that the last part of these attempts involved whoever this was dragging Merrill through a small corn patch, and there had been debris from the river wash onto the banks, making it impossible for him to finish what he had begun. He left her body about ten feet from the shoreline. It wasn't far from Merle's body that a bottle of whiskey that was emptied was found and an uprooted peach tree discovered with a string of pearls on it. Those were assumed to be Merle's, as her aunt Mint, who was visiting from New Jersey, had given her that necklace the day before to wear. An eight-inch lead pipe that appeared to be bloodstained was found near Merle's body, too. But Shepard said that lab tests were needed to make a determination as to whether or not that was the murder weapon. Shepard did say, however, that he didn't think that it was the murder weapon because her wounds were very clean and didn't look as though they were made by a pipe. And in all likelihood, the killer tossed the murder weapon into the river. The Floyd County attorney at the time, Woodrow Burchett, was described as, well, having a shall we say, captivating personality. And he had said that a terrific struggle had taken place and that it started on the bridge and ended where she was found. According to Burchett, footsteps led investigators up the hillside and towards no home specifically. But he said that they lost the tracks in a gravel alleyway. The investigation so far had also revealed that the shoe size was an eight or nine. Also, to the relief of the entire town, the sexual assault element had been eliminated. Burchett also said that there was no doubt that Merle had met her death at the hands of an unknown assailant. This is uncommon, given that according to the United States Justice Department, 80% of murder victims are killed by someone they know. Now, granted, that report was released in 1993 and the year Merle died was 1949, but human behavior being considered as a collective, I don't see that changing in the span of 44 years then, or even the 71 years from today's date. But what are the odds that a complete stranger just happened to be on an isolated bridge at the perfect time of night, which we think this happened, which was around 10.30 or 10.40, and then he happens upon this pretty young girl and thinks to himself, hey, I think I'm going to kill her. Now, if by some chance it did happen that way. Wouldn't it have been much more likely that rape was his intention? A rape that he obviously didn't succeed in. So he gets pissed off. He's drunk. He grabs a weapon of opportunity. 
and strikes her the five times, fracturing her skull? Alright, for this to be a crime of opportunity feels like a bit of a reach, but it is possible. So let's look at what happened. There were people that heard screams that night. And more than that, someone showed up to the door of a bootlegger twice on the night of the crime. And it was very, very close to that bridge. Hi, I'm Chris Sloan. You know, in addition to hosting the Mountain Mysteries podcast, I've also done a few audiobooks, and I would like to take a second to talk to you about one. Home is where the heart is, or the hatred. Now, you can feel the love and care someone puts into their home just by walking into it. We've done that. Equally, you can feel the hatred and malice when you step into a home where dark deeds have occurred. Alex and his team of so-called paranormal investigators are given the opportunity of a lifetime. You see... They're given permission to film inside of one of the most haunted and cursed locations in their area. It's called the Jackson Mansion. Now, what makes this mansion so incredibly unique is that it is entirely built underground. Determined to uncover the dark secrets of the mansion's past and prove himself a notable investigator, Alex doesn't care what it takes. But the mansion... Oh, it has other ideas as well as some rather restless occupants. Here's an excerpt from the audiobook, Buried. Chapter 10 Jade stood in the middle of the space, hugging herself while she waited for Leon to come back. At one point, his rope went taut, as though he had gotten to the end of it, but then it relaxed again. She hoped it was because he was helping Lily get back to where she was. She reasoned that Lily might be hurt, and that he was either carrying her, or she was walking slowly, leaning on Leon. That was it. They were just moving slowly, and any minute, the two of them would come through that door. She heard a creak behind her and quickly spun around, her eyes widening. You? How did you- Hello, Jade. Chris Jackson said, I am so sorry. I came as soon as I got the distress call from Alex. You got a distress call from Alex? Jade asked, shivering. Yes, and he asked that I come get you so that you can join the others. How did you get in here? (sighs) This mansion has been in my family for so many generations. I know all the ins and outs of it. I used a well-known servant's tongue. Jade burst into sobs and started blabbering. I heard everyone screaming, and, and Leon will be back any minute with Lily. And is Alex okay? Uh, I heard them screaming a few minutes ago. I'm, I'm so scared. Chris stepped up to her and wrapped his arms around her, holding her against his chest. Shh. I'm here now. Everything is going to be okay. He allowed her to cry into his chest for a while before pulling her away and wiping her tears gently. Let's get you out of this horrible place. And then I'll get everyone else out, all right? Alex is fine. I found him. He's waiting for you. Oh, thank God, Jade said, allowing Chris to take her hand and lead her into the empty bar room. Where's Joel? She asked. He came in here. I know, Chris said without looking back. I found him first and showed him how to get out so I could come get you. It really is an easy way out. Okay, Jade said. Chris led her through the bar room and through the dance hall on the other side and into a narrow corridor. Is the way out far? She asked quietly, scared someone 
or something would hear them. You'll find the link to that audiobook buried in the show notes below. Buried by Sharon B. Clavin and read by yours truly. We now return to Tears of a Star, The Mountain Mystery of Merle Baldrige. That June had been hotter than average in eastern Kentucky, with temperatures holding on in the low and mid-90s. 17-year-old Merrill Baldridge was enjoying summer vacation and was on her way home in Prestonsburg, Kentucky. She was taking a shortcut across the West Prestonsburg Bridge, coming back from a carnival that was in town. She and three friends had what seemed like a good Monday, as far as Mondays go. They had taken in a movie, a softball game that evening, and then spent less than an hour at the carnival, according to one of her friends that was there with her, Thelma Hollingsworth. She said they met in front of the local drugstore and made their plans, and got to the carnival around 9 p.m. Nothing out of the ordinary happened. A little teasing that was more flirting than anything. Seemed guys wanted to be seen with Meryl. But she was extraordinarily beautiful, and even more so with the personality she had. She wanted her friends to come home with her and spend the night and have some watermelon and make a sleepover out of it. But there were chores that needed to be done by some of the others, so they had to get home. They asked Merrill to walk back to town with them and catch a ride home, but Merrill decided that she would take a shortcut across the West Prestonsburg Bridge, a path she'd told them she'd taken hundreds of times. That's when she was viciously attacked and murdered, just a little after 10 in the evening. Now, there were those who said that they'd heard screams that night. The sound of terror broke the otherwise peaceful night air in the Star City, and it seemed that the screams were heard by more than one person. But we'll start with Mrs. Elbert Dotson and Mrs. Maggie Dotson who had the homes closest to the bridge on the western side. Mrs. Dotson stated the screaming got her out of bed, and she went to the back porch and turned on the light, and the screaming stopped. She said she'd always heard noises around that bridge, so she didn't think anything of it and went back to bed. Oh, but she wasn't the only one that heard that shrieking. Sue Goble, a fellow high school cheerleader and friend of Merrill's, was spending the night with Betty Lou Tackett at Betty's mother's, Mrs. James Dotson, who lived across the aqueduct from Elbert Dotson's home. Sue said that she and Betty Lou had heard the screams and sat upright in bed, then something odd. She stated that she heard an older woman's voice. She said it sounded like the words spoken were, Hey, where are you going? Or, Hey, where did you go? Sue had said that she thought some girl was trying to cross the bridge and a man had tried to grab her. She said she thought that it was her grandmother, but couldn't recognize the voice. Bertha, Merle's mother, was inconsolable during the police interview that she underwent, stating that she wasn't concerned or worried when Merle didn't come home that evening, assuming that she had stayed over at one of her friends. Her father, George, didn't feel as if it had been any one of Merle's high school acquaintances, male or female alike, but that the son of a bitch that did this should hang from that very bridge where she was murdered. 
It was Thursday, June 30th, 1949, and time and the things that stand still for no one seems to have grinded to a stop. Shops closed. Not some, but all of them. Closed down in Prestonsburg. This was then, and perhaps remains to this day, one of the saddest days in the small town's history. Mrs. May Martin, who was the owner of a beauty parlor in Prestonsburg, took a great amount of care in preparing Merle's body at the Carter Callahan funeral home. She cleaned Merle's hands and face before she laid her in the casket. Her service was at 2 p.m. at the Irene Cole Memorial Baptist Church which still stands today. L.D. Benedict oversaw the services that were attended by an estimated 3,000 people at the time. Prestonsburg had a population of only 2,300 people then. She was that well-loved, respected, and treasured. Friends say that they never saw her mad, but always smiling, kind, and loving. She had a zest for life in a way with people that made them feel comfortable and valued. So it's no surprise that when the services began, emotions overflowed. And the town stood in a silent reverence to its beautiful daughter that had been taken all too soon. As we said, all businesses closed, and the town's sole flower shop was vacant and without any inventory. It had all been taken to the church. It said that you couldn't see the church's altar for the virtual wall of flowers, over 75 arrangements that were all a tribute to Merrill. Cars lined the streets that were vacant of people as they lined up in the procession to pay their respects. It took over 30 minutes for visitors to file by the white casket trimmed in gold for all those paying respect and love to Merrill. She was gowned in orchid and white and on the casket set roses red and pink and gladolias. Members of the Prestonsburg High School football team carried in her casket with the most sincere reverence, and the remaining five members of the cheerleading squad were all in attendance. George and Bertha Baldridge sat in the front row, surrounded by their remaining children. The Reverend Benedict read from the 25th chapter of Matthew, saying the kingdom of heaven is likened to ten virgins. He stated that Merle was one of those virgins. After leaving the church, many were outside, and the sounds of silence were only occasionally interrupted by people talking about whether or not this case would ever be solved. And some wondered if the killer had come to the service. Hundreds of cars made their way down First Avenue, and to a small cemetery on the outskirts of Lloyd County where Merrill was laid to rest. The investigation was in full swing, but the leads came in slower and slower than molasses on a cold morning. The first of which, who was picked up, was a man named Richard Funk. He was in Catlettsburg, about an hour north of Prestonsburg, when a trucker named Oscar Miller, who was from the Star City, offered him a ride and became suspicious of Funk's behavior, his messed-up clothes and muddy shoes. Add to that fact that Funk said he'd been in Prestonsburg the day of the murder, and Sheriff Troy Sturgill had to talk to this guy. 
He told police that he was, in fact, in town the day of Merrill's murder, but had left at 2.30 in the afternoon. Funk stayed in custody for several more days before being released. Several more were brought in, questioned, and released before this guy. His name was Junior Osborne. Sturgill described him as a rejected suitor of Merle Baldridge, and many at the time were operating on the assumption that it had been a boyfriend that committed the murder, since she was very popular in teen circles and dated often, but no one in particular that they knew of had caught her attention. She played the field, as they call it today. Nothing wrong with that unless jealousy comes onto that field. That could create an issue. No matter who they questioned, though, they couldn't get enough strong leads to pursue. By now, the FBI and Kentucky State Police had come to the small town, and boy, did that stir the pot up. Kentucky State Police Detective Arch Thompson and Kentucky State Trooper J.E. Combs from the Pikeville Detachment, as it was known then, Post 9 as it's called today, joined the murder investigation along with a special agent from the FBI who said he was just there to lend a hand if need be. Detective Thompson said he felt that while no motive had been established, he felt jealousy was behind the brutal murder of Merrill. He wasn't alone in thinking the motive wasn't purely rape. With the Kentucky State Police and Federal Bureau of Investigation now in Prestonsburg, well, the gossip machine began spinning its whining little wheels as it does, and before long the rumor mill was churning out that the suspect was and could have very well been on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. But many investigators began to quietly form a different opinion. This trail that was used to drag Merle down the riverbank wasn't well known by many. So investigators formed the opinion that it had to be someone who knew that area well enough to navigate it in the pitch dark of night. While Trooper Combs continued to interview Merrill's classmates, law enforcement was struggling with maintaining the crime scene. It seemed like this murder investigation brought out every armchair detective in earshot that would trample a crime scene quicker than a boarhog gets on a corn cob. Making matters worse, a Tuesday morning rainstorm further degraded the scene. Fortunately, Dr. Earl T. Arnett of Prestonsburg, a dentist, was brought in to make a plaster of Paris cast of the footprints that investigators felt certain belonged to the killer. It was only seven days after the murder and the leads were running out. Sheriff Sturgill made a plea for any information and attached a $500 reward for information that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the murderer. $500 in 1949 is about like $5,500 today. Oh, excitement spread as word that a truth serum was going to be used to elicit honesty from suspects. Those interrogations took place inside the sheriff's office and included a quiet man named E.K. Dotson, who lived nearby the scene of the murder. His wife, Maggie, was one of the people who said she heard screams that night Merle was killed. As the truth serum investigations ended, police eliminated the likelihood that the suspect was someone from this area. A handful of citizens had hired the Pinkerton Detective Agency who had come until the funds dried up, and upon leaving, one of them had said that there were 191 rumors and 190 of them were wrong. State Police Detective Arch Thompson had turned over all the evidence he collected to the Pinkertons, 
and incoming state police detective Walter Woods, who was brought in from Manchester, Kentucky, and Woods stated that he was working with the whole Floyd County Sheriff's Department, the Pinkerton Detective Agency, and every law enforcement agency within earshot in general. He said if they sent J. Edgar Hoover himself to the small community, he wouldn't quit until this case was solved. It was at this point that the case had captured national attention, adding to the pressure to solve this thing for local, state, and federal law enforcement. For another two weeks, the investigation continued into the murder of Merrill Baldridge with no real suspects until July 12th, when it was announced that Donald Dutney Horn was being brought in for questioning. Horn had been a neighbor of Merrill's. Deputy Sheriff Harold Cons wore out the warrant against Horn, who was in El Paso, Texas. The general feeling in the Star City at that time, however, was that Horn couldn't have had anything to do with this. He was a nice guy a friendly boy with no previous run-ins with the law. The kind of kid you'd be happy to have around. While Horn may have known Merrill, it's thought that he never dated her, with John Archer Campbell, who was also known as Burhead at the time, stating that he didn't think Merrill would ever date anyone from the bottom, which was what West Prestonsburg was known as then. Merrill's sister, Med, stated that Horn had indeed stopped by the house the day of the murder to tell Merrill goodbye and that he was headed south, wearing blue trousers rolled up to his calves and a cigar in his mouth. Horn was brought back to Kentucky July 13th and put in a Paintsville, Kentucky jail. After cops had spoken with him, Horn was able to produce proof that he had left Kentucky for Texas a solid four hours before Merrill's murder. The list of suspects seemed to be getting thin. At this point, Detective Thompson shifted his investigation to the carnival that had come to town. These traveling carnivals of the South were shady as hell. They had a reputation for hiring people that were just about as bad, at best. Thompson and Sergil talked to Bees shows, the owners of the carnival that had come to town, and most of the workers had alibis. They needed a break. And one would come July 21st when Olin Collins, a 15-year-old carnival worker, came forth and said he knew who killed Merrill. He identified William Bill Gamble as the man who killed the 17-year-old girl. Collins from McGoffin County said that he not only knew Gamble had killed Merrill, but that he was there when it happened. Gamble, a 24-year-old from the Knott County community of Red Fox, denied the accusations. Collins, the one doing the accusing, said he was riding with Gamble in Gamble's car when they entered West Prestonsburg and saw Merrill walking on the bridge. Collins said that Gamble snatched Merrill from the bridge, clapped his hand over her mouth, and then circled and drove up Middle Creek, about three miles, and took Merrill out into a field. They both returned about 30 minutes later. She was crying, and he appeared mad, according to Collins. It was then that Gamble allegedly took a 14-inch screwdriver and struck Merrill over the head, and she slumped over unconscious. According to Collins, Gamble drug her out of the car by the arm and down the path under the bridge 
taking the screwdriver with him. When he came back, Colin said the screwdriver and Gamble's pants were bloodied. He threw the tool under the seat and, according to Collins, burned his pants, quote, this side of Virginia, end quote. There's a lot about this account that doesn't add up at all. Gamble is wrestling a girl and driving a curvy mountain road at the same time? Then there's the issue of bringing her back to a heavily populated area to kill and then dump her. Also, towards the end of the interview, Collins' statements became confused and somewhat contradictory. Nonetheless, apparently wanting to close this case and bring the family and community some peace, it seemed the case was solved and a trial was going to be planned. Whoa, 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 wait. Not so fast. A community in mourning. Anger and frustration fill the air of eastern Kentucky as the shock continues to be felt over the loss of one of their own. A child who was just entering into the threshold of adulthood but had not quite made it yet. She was young and beautiful. She was only 17. And now, she was dead. Right about the time that investigators thought they had their killer. Oh, you'll see. It was August 3rd, 1949, when an entire town's hopes for justice were shattered. 15-year-old Olin Collins had recanted his account about William Gamble being the one who killed Merle Baldridge on June 27th under the West Prestonsburg Bridge. It's strange how things can change in the course of only a week. The town had simmered to a boil wanting justice for the family and themselves. They wanted to know that they were safe again, that they could leave their doors unlocked, let their children play, and feel free to walk the streets at night. Unfortunately, that was not going to come around anytime soon. This murder not only stole the life of a beautiful young girl and shredded a family, this murder stole the innocence of an entire community of people that worked hard and loved just as hard. Yes, people were pissed. Collins confessed, saying that he had just told a lie and didn't know a thing about the death of that girl. He said that he'd heard about it from his mom, who had contacted him while he was coming home from Abingdon, Virginia. When asked how he knew about certain details in the case, such as the time and place and the screaming, he said that he was just guessing. The cops were still not convinced that Collins was telling the truth at all. Why would this kid lie about something so serious? Another thing that was odd was the fact that when he initially told police that Gamble had killed Merle, he refused a lie detector test. But now, he said as long as it was okay with his mom, he'd do it. Now, as sour as that apple was to bite, there was some good news that came in. Detectives learned that there was an African-American carnival worker that was also in Gamble's car on the night of the murder, or so they thought. Turns out that a man named George Burton Shorty Williams was brought in from London, Kentucky for questioning. They found out that the ride that Williams was involved in took place the Saturday after the murder. 
After a thorough investigation of the car that they were all riding in, Williams was cleared as a suspect. After this, the mood of the people in the community was demoralizing, to say the least. It was only a few weeks later that this case took another odd turn when William Bill Gamble actually admitted to killing Merrill and signed a confession in Cincinnati. This was the same guy that Olin Collins said had done it to begin with, then said he lied. Now the accused is stepping forth saying, yes, I did it. Well, Sheriff Troy Sturgill felt content with a confession but couldn't shake an uneasy feeling that he had about whether Gamble actually had committed this murder alone. Sturgill felt that he had to have had help. He suspected two other carnival workers of being involved. They were identified as Thomas Howell and George Whitey Cochran, and their stories matched Gamble's on his whereabouts the night of the murder. Howell and Cochran both maintained that Gamble was with them when they left Greenup, Kentucky, and he had taken the car leaving both men stranded when they arrived in Perry County. Sturgill knew this was a lie because he had been working with the Perry County Sheriff's deputy and had testimony from another officer, a coal miner, and Gamble's relatives that stated they arrived in Perry County in the early morning hours of Tuesday, June 28th. The two had told them that they had ridden with Gamble overnight from Greenup via Route 7 from Grayson through Sandy Hook to West Liberty, and on to Prestonsburg and then Hindman. As if enough so-called confessions already weren't plaguing this thing, another rolled in on August 26th from a 23-year-old Pikeville man named Leo Justice. Bill Gamble said that this was another fool, more than likely trying to get his neck broke too. It was clear at this point that this was quite possibly the most screwed-up murder investigation that's ever happened in eastern Kentucky. We've got two confessions and two retractions. Gamble's reconfession. Then Colin says he doesn't know anything about the case. Whoa, hold on, because we still have another statement from Gamble saying that he did do it after all. Thank you. Can I get some fries and a Diet Coke with that? If GPS existed in 1949, Tom Tom would have ran the hell away trying to navigate this mess. It was later on that Detective Arch Thompson stepped away from the case, maybe for his own health and sanity. Thompson remained convinced that they hadn't even touched the real killer yet, and that the investigation was right back at the bleak beginning. Sheriff Troy Sturgill was ready to take Collins and Gamble before a grand jury, if nothing else for obstruction of justice and hindering an investigation. But he delayed that action and focused on what he would only say was a hot lead. Very hot. Some speculated that this mysterious lead was someone who was an eyewitness to the murder of Merrill that night, or someone who finally knew something other than how to spread rumors and guesses. Once again, all Sturgill would say was that it was hot. Playing it close to your chest seems like a good idea given the misstep so far. It was found out that this hot lead came from a Pinkerton detective, who at this time had been brought back when the money was there, of course. Anyway, this Pinkerton detective identified as Beck had quietly re-entered the investigation and Thompson was leery. Oh, he was very leery, in fact. Thompson said the only thing that the Pinkertons had provided in this whole damn mess were material clues that had been passed on from hand to hand. He said the way the case stands, it's blocked. And when the Sheriff's Department, the Kentucky State Police, 
and the FBI can't move it, then it can't be moved. Thompson was asked several times to come back onto the case and he refused, saying that he would love to come back to the case as long as it was unhampered. Too many private eyes, publicity seekers, and curiosity crews were screwing things up and that the good citizens of Prestonsburg were throwing away and wasting their money. On September 29th, the grand jury heard testimony in several cases, including Merrill's, but they did not indict Gamble for her murder, nor did they indict Collins on the obstruction of justice charges that Sheriff Sergil had sought. The only indictment that they did hand down in this case was against the 23-year-old Leo Justice from Pike County that we mentioned earlier, despite the fact that Pike Sheriff D.C. more firmly believed Justice was not guilty of anything. But the indictment handed down wasn't for murder, but rather for an obstruction of justice charge the sheriff had originally sought after. It was over three months since Merrill's life had been taken, and it was beginning to look like this would never be solved. It was January of 1950. There had been four months now passed since any new information about the case had been heard of. But quietly and behind the scenes, Kentucky State Police Detective Arch Thompson had returned to the investigation and was working with new police chief Epp Lafferty and newly elected Sheriff Banner Meade. There had been new life breathed into the case when two new clues showed up. A pair of stained pants and a pillow, which had blonde hair on it, the same color as Merrill's. The pillow, trousers, as well as other evidence, including the clothes that Merrill was wearing the night she was killed, was now in the custody of the FBI. Lafferty said that he believed that the items in evidence were connected to Merrill's death. For the first time in months, there was hope. The whole town felt it. A lot of faith was placed in Epp Lafferty as being the new chief of police in Prestonsburg, partly because of the no-nonsense style he had. He had served as a sheriff's deputy, being sworn in at the young age of 16. It was only a few weeks later that he'd shot a man to death during a police standoff. He was known to carry a pearl-handled 38 caliber Smith & Wesson on his side. The plot gets a little bit more tangled here. You see, it seems that Bill Gamble, the same man that was accused of Merle's murder, you know, then the accuser recanted, then Gamble himself reconfessed or confessed. Well, before recanting, he had escaped from a hazard jail. He was in jail waiting to stand trial on breaking and entering and grand larceny charges. He broke out December 3rd. But this didn't become public knowledge until January 1st, when the new jailer, Taylor Porter, replaced Charles Duff. Now, it was said that Duff would let most prisoners roam about freely. The reward for information that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the person or people found guilty of the murder of Merrill Baldridge was now at $1,635. Now, translated into today's currency, that comes out to about $17,671. Oh, but another grand jury session was looming, and Detective Arch Thompson was very restrained about giving out any information as to whether or not any of the evidence would be given to said grand jury about Merrill's murder. 
He wouldn't give an answer to that, nor any questions or answer any questions about the test results that came back from the FBI on the trousers or pillow. Turner had known for some time now how to shut those whiny little wheels on the gossip machine up and had seen firsthand what they can do to an investigation, especially one as important as this. It was now February 4th, 1950, and a shocker to many people fell on the Star City as they learned that the Floyd County Circuit Court Grand Jury had indicted two people on the charges of the murder of Merrill Baldridge. Maybe one of the biggest head-scratchers here came from the fact that one of the men was Lon S. Moles. Moles was a well-respected 60-year-old man in the small community and served on the Board of Education. He worked side-by-side with Merrill's father, George. He was also known as a community leader. He helped oversee the construction of the Arched Bridge in West Prestonsburg, the same bridge that Merrill was found under. He knew Merrill well, as she would come by after school to see her father and use the station's telephone. Lon's wife, Elizabeth, was a well-known member of Prestonsburg Society as well and held her reputation up amongst the stars. A lot of people felt that Lon was somewhat smitten with Merrill as his office view gave him the perfect vantage point of Merrill's front yard, and he could see her come and go. It was also said that during Merrill's visits that she would sit on Lon's desk talking and laughing and that he may have become obsessed with her. Now, the other one indicted was a friend of Moe's, Elbert K. Dotson, better known as E.K. He was a former restaurant owner and taxicab operator who was from Prestonsburg, but now living in Jackson, Ohio. Dotson was one of the five that had been questioned under the truth serum, but he gave no useful information at the time. According to E.K., he was at home in bed the night of the murder, and he heard a dog barking, or so he thought. He added that his mother, who lived with him at the time, turned on the hall lights and asked if he heard anyone holler. Dodson said he thought it was a neighborhood dog. Now, the claim that he was in bed raised some eyebrows as it was one of the hottest and most humid nights of the year. Remember, air conditioning was not a thing in 1949. Local pharmacist M.J. Leet, who worked at the used drug store, knew Moles and Dodson well. He said Dotson had been drinking most of the evening with lawn molds and had been seen at Coburn's, which was a local gas station only a few hours after the murder. Leet further testified that he'd been issuing prescriptions for dope to molds on a regular basis for the last year or so, a medication known as Sanicol or Salicon, and that molds had been buying the medicine for several months. It's supposed to put the user in a I-don't-care mood. Something else that was odd came to light. Merrill had briefly encountered Dotson on the Sunday before her death, when Dotson had some car trouble at Dewey Dam. A 57-year-old Elmer Clifton was a friend of both Moles and Dotson and told investigators that he and his wife saw Dotson's car parked on a road that led to the dam, with Dotson standing right beside the vehicle. Clifton pulled his car closer and noticed Merrill and two of her friends just feet away from them, walking. Well, Dotson and his wife were out of the car and explained that it had stalled and asked Clifton if he could use his vehicle to push Dotson's up the hill. Well, Clifton agreed to that, but said as he turned, he noticed a man lying in the back seat of Dotson's car. 
Clifton said that he could not make a positive identification, but that his wife did. She said it was Lawn Moles. Clifton then said that Merrill and her friends watched as they pushed the car to the top of the hill and began walking towards them as if they were going to ask for a ride in either Dotson's or the other car that was parked nearby. Clifton said Dotson was acting strangely, as if he were drunk. Bill Moore and his wife also saw Clifton helping Dotson that day and said that he saw Merrill there also. Detective Thompson knew the investigation was focused on Dotson and Moles, but he wasn't about to rule out that others may have been involved. He had questioned a group of men that were identified as Jack Crumb, Yancey Horn, Rube Rose, and Sherman Gibson under oath once he had learned that they had been near the arched bridge that night that Merrill died. The detective had heard that Rube Rose saw Merrill leaving her house one day in the company of female classmates and said that he would give a $5 bill for that. And if he had her alone in the dark, he boasted, it wouldn't cost him a cent. Rowe denied ever saying that, stating that Merrill was raised under his foot, and anyone claiming that he said such a thing was a bald-faced liar. Thompson was still being secretive about the evidence that he'd been collecting all this while, and the rest of the evidence other investigators had collected too. Those closest to the investigation said that the transcribed statements were the primary evidence that was brought before the grand jury and had been collected by Merle's brother, Bernard, who was allowed to read them in court. And that made for a rare type of drama. Well, that afternoon, Moles was arrested and it said that he went silently. He expressed no surprise at the turn of the events. Dotson made a trip back to Prestonsburg as well. Both men remained in jail while their attorneys devised a strategy. Instead of seeking bail, they focused on a change of venue for the trial. Both had pled not guilty in their first court appearance and knew that a venue change could be the only hope of a fair trial. The reaction of Prestonsburg residents and the county alike seemed to only create a quiet stir amongst the citizens, but there seemed to be a consensus that a show of any kind of real excitement might bring bad luck to the proceedings or create enough of a distraction to taint the trial's impending results. When we come back, the trial begins, and there's more twists and turns than these mountain roads in eastern Kentucky are known for. I really hope that you're liking the mountain mysteries, but did you know that you can get these episodes early? Go ahead and go into the show notes and click on Patreon and become a subscriber. Different tiers get you different access points to different things, but all Patreon subscribers will get early access to each of the episodes of The Mountain Mysteries, at least a week before they actually air publicly. So please, support us on Patreon. And if you don't want to do a month-to-month kind of thing, that's cool too. Hey, get us a cup of coffee. We'd really appreciate any support. You'll find the link to a PayPal donation down there too. And you know what? If you can't afford to actually do much of anything right now, that's okay. I understand. Times are tough. But just by downloading and giving us a five-star rating and writing a nice review, that helps us more than you can know. Stay mysterious. And now let's get back into the Mountain Mysteries. The Mountain Mystery of Merrill Baldrige. It was Valentine's Day, but if there was love in the air, you sure couldn't feel it. 
good news for the legal team of Moles and Dotson, though. The change of venue had been granted by special judge Eldred E. Adams, who announced that the trial would take place in neighboring Pike County Circuit Court. It was more disappointment for most residents of Floyd County, who in the hundreds had gathered at the courthouse, only to see little and hear even less. Attorneys didn't say much, and Moles and Dotson said nothing at all. Petitions were filed and procedures were handled quickly. Those petitions were handled by W.A. Daughtry and Edward L. Allen, who represented Moles. Daughtry had the mantle of being the best defense attorney in eastern Kentucky. Now, while he was expensive, he was also good and rarely lost a case in the courtroom. Public sentiment was leaning that Moles was going to be convicted and sentenced to death. Dotson was represented by Grover C. Allen from Jackson, Kentucky. His law partner was there to also provide counsel for Dotson. On the town's team was Commonwealth Attorney John Chris Cornett, who had help from County Attorney Woodrow Burchett and a hand from H.R. Burke. Those petitions for both men were identical, citing that the popularity, wide acquaintanceship, and relationship of Merle Baldridge and her family in Floyd County had aroused such strong and dangerous public opinion against the defendants that it would be impossible to get Floyd County jurors to give them a fair and impartial trial. Further statements were that there is now in and around the courthouse and in fact throughout the county an atmosphere of hatred against them that is so dense it can be readily observed by visitors and that jurors will be affected thereby and intimidated. Later, an even larger crowd had gathered in the courthouse after a brief recess for the afternoon session. An estimated 1,000 people were inside the courtroom on the second floor. Now, it's said that people on the first floor were worried about the upper floor collapsing. But like the first group, they were in for a disappointment when there was no testimony or any evidence that was presented. A day later, Sheriff Banner Meade took both Moles and Dotson to the jail in Pike County, and Pikeville Judge E.D. Stevenson set the bonds at $15,000 each. As both men were released under the bonds, an attempt was made at scheduling the trial. The docket was highly congested to the point that it was crazy, and Stevens said that they just have to make a place for it and set the date for March 27th whether anyone liked it or not. Legal victories had been won for the Commonwealth of Kentucky in the days before the trial, as attorneys for both Moles and Dotson filed three separate motions in Pike Circuit Court. The first motion was to throw out the indictments altogether. Well, that flopped. Then the second was to require the Commonwealth to show all papers, writing, and documents produced by Bernard Baldrich, Merle's brother, and that were read by him to the Floyd County Grand Jury. That also failed. Finally, the third motion was asking to reveal the names of all the witnesses who appeared before the grand jury and who were expected to testify at the Pikeville trial. Judge Stevenson shot that down, too. But he did direct that the names of all witnesses who produced evidence during the grand jury investigation proceedings be written on the indictment. Bernard Baldridge was asked just after the motions were filed to supply the names of the people who had sworn affidavits in the statements. He was able to do so in most cases. Most of the names of those went to court officials in Pike County, 
The stenographer who worked the Floyd County Grand Jury case was also questioned, and she said that she didn't recall the context or details of the various papers, including Bernard Baldridge's sworn statements. Well, time as it does marched on, and March 27th rolled around, and the trial was set to begin. Attorneys for Moles and Dotson requested, and they received a continuance. It was granted when the lawyers unveiled an affidavit signed by both defendants stating that Olin Collins, oh, you remember him, the 15-year-old boy from McGoffin County that had it first identified William Bill Gamble as Merle's killer, would again offer his account of Gamble being the killer if called as a witness in the trial. So he's changing his story again. First he said Gamble did it, then he said that was a lie. Then now he's saying if he's called back, he'll witness that Gamble murdered Merle. The affidavit also said that a summons had been issued for Collins, but they couldn't serve it because Collins was now living in Breathitt County, not McGoffin County. The defense said that they could and would produce Collins in the trial, and that concerned the prosecution a lot. The new trial date was set for May 15th, and everyone was hoping for some kind of resolve, some kind of relief. May 15th was on a Monday. Spring was in the air, and so was the hope that Prestonsburg would see justice and maybe some peace for the death of Merle Baldridge, who, at only 17, had her life taken by... someone. Nobody knew who, though. That's what brings us to the Pikeville Circuit Court and Lon S. Moles and E.K. Dotson, the two men who were about to stand trial for her death, and while indicted together... It was decided that the two would be tried separately. Lon S. Moles, the man who had worked alongside of Merle's father at CNO Railroad and also served as a respected school board member, would be tried first. Many had the thought that this would be the most interesting trial in the history of Eastern Kentucky. Oh, if they had only known. The prosecution stated that they would attempt to prove that a man who answered to Moles' description got out of a car, like his own, and near the bridge only moments before Merle's death screams were heard. They said they had a witness who would be testifying that Moles had scratches on his arm only shortly after the killing. The first two days were devoted to jury selection. There were 103 men and women brought before the court just for this. The most poignant question being asked that was brought before any and all prospective jurors was that if the evidence were sufficient, could they sentence the men to death? By that Wednesday morning, a jury of ten men and two women were in place. It was 1 p.m. Wednesday, May 17th, when the first witness took the stand in the case. It was George Baldridge. Merle's father. He testified that she had left home the night of Monday, June 27th with friends and that she told him they would be attending a ball game that night and made mention of possibly stopping by the carnival in town. He said that he was eating breakfast the next morning around 6.30 when some girls came to his porch telling him that there was a dead girl close by on the riverbank and they thought it was Merle. Merle. 
he rushed to the riverbank and there, in the silence of death, lay his daughter, still wearing that blue sundress, her head severely wounded, her blonde hair stained red with blood. He said it looked as though her body had been dragged about 75 feet from the direction of the bridge. George went on to say that their home was only about 100 feet from the train depot and Merle would stop by there often to use the phone. Next, Green Haywood, a Prestonsburg man, testified that he was with Moles and Dodson when they went to a bootlegger's home the day after the murder. Haywood happened to be the father-in-law of Merle's brother, Dexter Baldridge, and said that the primary reason for the trip was so Moles could find out who sold a certain brand of whiskey. Four Roses. He said Moles was curious about it because an empty whiskey bottle had been found under the bridge near Merle's body. He said he was going to get drunk, that this thing was killing him. That poor little girl would never sit on his desk again and laugh and joke with him. Haywood further stated that in the weeks that followed, Moles would consistently ask him about Merle's case if he'd heard anything new. The bootlegger in question was Clyde M. Gotsey. He took the stand after Haywood and testified that during the evening in question, Moles came to his home twice on the morning after the murder, once at midnight, then at 4 a.m. During the first visit, Moles bought whiskey from Godsey with a $20 bill, but said, don't turn the lights on. Julia Godsey, Clyde's wife, also testified, saying that she couldn't see to make change for the 20, so she did, in fact, turn on the light and saw bloodstains on the front of Moles' shirt. When she was asked how much blood was on Moles' shirt, she replied, a right smart amount. When he was there the first time, he had only had on a little summer shirt, thin, yellow, short-sleeved. During his 4 a.m. visit, however, she stated that Moles had changed clothing. She said that Moles had bought a pint of whiskey, a brand called Four Roses, and that Moles had asked if anyone else had purchased that particular brand. Clyde told him no, they hadn't. He said Moles was quiet for a moment, and then looked at him and said, Remember, I wasn't here last night. Elvin H. Goebel was then called to testify. Goebel was a filling station attendant and said Moles had brought his car to have the seat covers replaced. Goebel said that while the seat covers were stained, he didn't know what had caused the stains, but they showed signs of being washed. Goebel recounted a conversation with Moles thereafter and said that Moles argued with him about when the covers were changed, insisting that it had been an entire month before they actually were changed. R. L. Rob Shepard was a teacher at Prestonsburg High School and testified that he picked up Moles the day after the murder on June 28th and noticed scratches on his left arm. He asked Moles about how he received those injuries and Moles had no reply. After Shepard, R.C. Dyer, who was a contractor from Prestonsburg, said he saw Moles the day after the killing and witnessed scratches on Moles' arms and face. Do you remember us talking about Betty Lou Tackett? a friend and classmate of Merle's. She was then called to the stand and testified that she had been visiting a friend who lived near the bridge and heard the screams that night and watched a man walking quickly, but he had disappeared behind a bridge pillar when he saw two boys speed by on a motorcycle. 
The prosecutor asked Moles to stand and he looked at Tackett and asked him if Moles looked like that person that she had seen that evening. Betty Lou said no. The man she saw looked to be larger than Moles. The last witness of the day was Sybil Mackenzie Moore. She was one of the girls with Merle the night she was murdered, one of the friends that had offered to walk her across that bridge. She testified that the evening began by meeting Merle at the Baldridge home, then going with her to the ball game and then the carnival. On their way home, Sybil said that an unfamiliar car pulled up beside of them and almost stopped and asked if they needed a ride. Another girlfriend who had been walking with him left Merle near a garage, nearly a block from the bridge. And that was the last time they saw Merle alive. The Commonwealth had called 11 witnesses that day, pinning its hopes on what it thought was to be strong circumstantial evidence. There was the whiskey bottle found at the scene. It was Four Roses brand. Then there was the bloodstained shirt also found near Merle that was thought to be Mole's the one he was wearing at midnight, only two hours after the murder, and his shoe size matched the footprint found at the scene. They put together, along with powerful witness testimony, a compelling case. Oh, it was very clear indeed the prosecution was out for blood. They were out for the death penalty. Moe's legal team was getting their defense ready and bringing attention to the fact that they had intent to prove misconduct on the part of Prestonsburg Police Chief Epp Lafferty. Moe's lawyer, W.A. Daughtry, contended Lafferty had attempted to influence a witness in the trial by offering him $1,000 and a house for evidence that would convict Moles. The defense said that they would be able to prove that Moles was home and in bed asleep at the time Merle was murdered. Daughtry said that the prosecution had nothing but circumstantial evidence and questioned the validity of the evidence that would be presented at the trial. During the opening remarks for the defense, Moe's attorney called to attention the reward fund that had been created to catch Merle's killer, calling it a slush fund that had been made for a scrambled situation. He also said that the fund was dangerous, citing that it would cause someone to swear to something that wasn't the truth. And he added that the 60-year-old Moles, who was suffering from a variety of health problems, could simply not physically be able to drag Merle's body down to the riverbank and then beat her to death. Daughtry's first witness was Lon Moles himself, who told of his accounts as to what happened that night. He said that he attended a softball game and retired early after coming home from the game, saying he didn't leave home again until 4 the next morning to go to work at the CNO Railroad Station. He said he knew nothing of the murder until around 6.30 that morning when he went back home to get breakfast. That was when he saw a large crowd at the scene of the bridge. Moe's wife was also called to the stand and her sister as well, both of which testified that Lon was home by 9.30 that evening, and Mrs. Moe's said that she was awake until at least 3.25 in the morning due to arthritic pains, and that Lon was in bed the entire time. She said she knew because she could hear him snoring throughout the entire house. Mrs. Mole's sister, Belva Quisenberry, stated that she was up nearly all evening caring for her sick mother and saw Lon's car there all night. 
Prestonsburg attorney J.W. Howard, as well as Mrs. Alex H. Spradlin, were also called to testify. Alex Spradlin, a well-liked teacher at Prestonsburg High School, watched as his wife testified in the packed courtroom. Both Howard and Mrs. Spradlin testify that they saw scratches on moles during the weeks before the murder happened. The defense called Jack Boyd also, one of the two young men who crossed the bridge at 1025 that evening. Boyd said that he and his friend Daniel Conley had been told that Merle was walking home alone on the bridge and they went to take her home. Boyd said that they saw a man on the bridge dressed in a two-tone western shirt and stated that that man was not Moles. It was at this point the defense then called John Keenan Jr. to the stand. Keenan said that on June 27th he saw Merle cross the bridge into Prestonsburg with her friend Sybil McKenzie. Keenan was visiting the home of Dora Stevens, who was a family friend. Approximately a quarter after 10 that evening, he left the Stevens residence and while going across the bridge, heard what he described as three or four screams and claimed that after hearing that, he walked back across the bridge and saw two men in their 30s or 40s, dressed in tan work clothing, and said one man was six feet tall, while the other was shorter. He also stated that a man and a woman was sitting on the bridge that evening. O.T. Stevens, Mole's friend and personal doctor, also stated on Mole's behalf that he had been treating Mole's and his wife for the better part of 10 years for arthritis and rheumatism. He said that he saw Mole's car parked in the driveway twice that evening just before 10. Banner Burchett was a local coal miner who took the stand and said that he saw two people parked in a car at the carnival the night of Merle's murder and identified them as Olin Collins and William Gamble. Neither of those two were ever called to testify. Well, by now, the defense felt that they had cast enough doubt with the jury as to clear Moles of the charges against him. They did falter, however, when they were unable to prove that Prestonsburg Police Chief Epp Lafferty tried to bribe a witness during the investigation. They called John George to the stand, who along with his wife was allegedly offered a bribe from Lafferty. George had lived in a small apartment above the garage on E.K. Dotson's property. Lafferty thought that there was a chance that George or his wife knew details about the murder, but were afraid to come forward fearing that they'd lose their home. However, John George said Lafferty never mentioned moles during the talk they had. He did say Lafferty told him there was a thousand dollars in it for you if you tell what you know, and if you move, we'll furnish you a house, and if you're afraid, the law will protect you. George did testify that he heard screams that night, but knew nothing else about the crime. After some more minor testimony concluded on Wednesday, May 24th, the case went to the jury after closing arguments. When we come back, the verdict. The jury had deliberated the night before and stayed overnight as they told Judge J. Frank Stewart that they couldn't reach a verdict. But as the sun rose on a new day, the promise of hope dawned on the star city that justice would be served. No matter the trial's outcome, nothing would or could bring Merle back. But the hopes and prayers of Eastern Kentucky 
were that the family that had already endured so much heartbreak, trauma, and torment over having hope ripped from their hands and hearts time and again would finally be over. And healing, no matter in how small of an amount, could finally begin. Not only for the Bollidridge family, but for Eastern Kentucky as a whole. One hour and 53 minutes after deliberations had resumed, the jury was ready and had reached a unanimous verdict and was ready to make the announcement. An announcement that seemed all of Kentucky was waiting to hear. A hush fell over those in the courthouse as the jury entered. You know, I can only imagine the lips that were being bitten and the tenseness of a situation that had carried on far too long. It had been nearly a year since Merle's death, and all the efforts put forth to find justice for the teen was about to come to a head. The jury foreman stood and calmly said, Not guilty. A breath came forward in loud chatter throughout the courtroom. As relieved as Moles was after hearing the verdict, Dotson was just as relieved when it was announced that the murder charge against him was going to be dismissed. One of the jurors, Marvin Williamson, said that the jury could have reached a verdict after only 10 minutes, but one juror felt that Moles was guilty. The Baldridge family was crushed. They left the courtroom as if the very breath of life had been stolen from them. They were certain Moles was guilty of killing Merle or played a part in her murder. Merle's father, George, was inconsolable. A few days after, officials returned Merle's bloodstained dress and the other possessions to her family, with her sister, Mary Hillary, taking possession of the clothing and other personal items. It was only hours later that Bertha, Merle's mother, burned the belongings that had been returned to the family in a hope that it would put an end to any more investigations into her daughter's murder. Items were also returned to Lawn Moles and E.K. Dotson, and they too burned the bloodstained shirt and other evidence used against them in court. Less than a month later, the class of 1950 of Prestonsburg High School graduated. To say that it was mixed emotions is putting it lightly. Merle had looked forward to this milestone and sadly, she wasn't there to enjoy it. Tears flowed from fellow classmates and faculty alike as a moment of silence was observed to remember such a bright light the light of a star. A few months later, the Baldridge family was paid a visit by a young art student in his early 20s named Hugh Winston Stumbo. The family knew Merle had dated Stumbo, but were surprised to learn that he and Merle had become secretly engaged. He had given her a ring, and they had made plans to marry. Stumbo left heartbroken and in tears. While he was there, though, he had given Merle's family a hand-drawn portrait of the beautiful girl they all knew and loved immensely. 
that drawing was done from his memory. The days that came after never were any easier for George Baldridge. Even though Dotson had quickly returned to his family farm in Ohio, Moles had remained in Prestonsburg and continued to work at CNO with George. To say that it was a tense working relationship doesn't sound fair. George believed Moles had killed his baby daughter. There was this one day that Moles had ordered George to set a rail car off some tracks. George stopped, turned, and walked over to Moles. And man, he had a fire and purpose raging in his eyes, a rage that had simmered long enough. George grabbed Moles' arm and struck him in the head with a metal lunch pail, saying, I know you killed my daughter. And don't you ever speak to me again, you murdering son of a bitch. Moles fell back and muttered George's name, and the two never spoke again. 1957 was an especially tough year as a devastating flood occurred in the region. Lives were lost and property damaged, people left homeless. But in December, there was a break in the eight-year-old case. On December 8th, Sheriff Gorman Collins declared that extradition proceedings had started against a man named Minor Caldwell Taylor, an inmate at the Indiana State Prison. Taylor was 35 and apparently had confessed to the crime and also implicated two other men identified as Paschal Smith and Edward Brown. Well, this turned out to be yet another false confession due to Taylor feeling that he wasn't being treated fairly in prison in Indiana and said he'd rather do life in Kentucky than a year where he was. It was on Friday, January 12, 1951, a little after noon, that George Baldridge passed away from a sudden heart attack at the age of 57. A lot of people thought that George died of a broken heart. Bertha Hayes Baldridge, Merle's mom, she held on until 1968 when she passed away, and her siblings, Merle's siblings, over the course of time, passed on until the last one, Mary Baldridge Burchett, passed away in 2009 at the age of 92. A day after her parents' wedding anniversary. Years after this tragic mystery, people in Prestonsburg still mourn the loss of Merle, and the bridge that she was found under still stands. It's barricaded almost like a testament to the justice that was never served. It keeps people at arm's length. Like this case has kept people from the truth of who murdered her. There's very few who haven't heard about Merle Baldridge and this tragic murder, the cemetery where Merle is laid to rest is in need of upkeep, and a fund has been established to help with that. We've placed the address in the show notes of this episode. You know it's been over 70 years now since Merle died. And justice has no time limit. And all too often it is far more patient than we are. But we will still continue to wait, hope, and pray. Until the next episode of the Mountain Mysteries. I'm Chris Sloan. Stay mysterious.
If you enjoy the Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a 5-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support the Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more. Studio Production.